0: Welcome, everybody, to Easter at Cedar Creek Church. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Easter, aren't you a little bit early, Philip? I mean, it's not even Palm Sunday yet. And no, I am not suffering from a case of calendar confusion. I just figure if Christmas, the birth of Jesus, gets a whole month, to be celebrated that the resurrection of Jesus deserves more than just one week of celebration because while the birth of Jesus is important to our faith, the resurrection of Jesus is essential to our faith. That Christmas, I love Christmas because it means that God is with us, but the resurrection means that we are can be with God. And I'm not just talking about in heaven when we die. I'm talking about right here, right now, because of the resurrection, broken, jacked up, sinful, messed up people like me and like you can have a daily, intimate connection and relationship with a holy and perfect God. Listen, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the defining moment, not just in history, but it is a defining moment in our faith, and it can be a defining moment in our lives if we let it. I looked up that phrase, defining moment, in the dictionary, and according to the dictionary, a defining moment is any event or series of events that changes everything around it and everything that comes after it, right? We often look at human history through the lens of defining moments, right? We look back and think about, you know, way back the the invention of the wheel or the Wright brothers. Slide or, you know, the Declaration of Independence or World War II or, or the invention of the internet, uh, or even maybe this year we'll look back at 2020 and say that was a defining moment. There are these things that change the course of human history. But we also look at our lives in terms of defining moments, right? When you look back over your life, you think about those moments that changed everything maybe it was graduating from school or, or getting that first real job out in the real world or maybe it was getting married or or having a child or you know those things kind of define your life the direction the course of your life and of course it's not just the good happy defining moments sometimes our lives are defined by difficult moments maybe it's that divorce you went through or that loss Of a loved one. Defining moments are are how we view often the world around us. And if you look at the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, if you really understand the resurrection of Jesus, you'll see it's not just a defining moment in history, but it is the defining moment of our faith. If there's no resurrection, there is no Christian faith. There there is no church, There, there is no Bible, there is no good news of hope. The foundation of our faith is not the Bible. It's not the church. It's not even the teachings of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Because as important as all of those other things are, without the resurrection, they don't really exist. They don't matter. In fact, look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Without the resurrection, we're just another religion. Another group of people trying to set a a standard of moral rules in order to better ourselves. The resurrection is the defining moment of our faith. So you can kind of see why I think we ought to spend more than just one week celebrating it and focusing on it. So over the next couple of weeks, we're kicking off this new series of messages called Easter, the defining moment. And over these couple of weeks, we're going to explore some defining moments that are a part of the defining moment. And this week, we're going to start things off by taking sort of a big picture view of the events around the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to explore the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. Those seven days between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, they are often referred to as the Passion Week. Many of you are familiar with the events of this week. Whether you grew up in Sunday school as a kid and you were told the story with the flannel graphs, you know, in Sunday school, or maybe you've sat through countless poorly acted Easter pageants or cantatas, or maybe you've just seen Mel Gibson's movie or that ancient movie, uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told. But most of us, I'm not assuming all, but most of us kind of know the key events, we know the heart of the story. And here's the thing, if we're not careful, our familiarity with the events of this week can cause us to miss the importance of this week. So I want us to take a fresh look at this passion week, this last week of Jesus' life. I want you to try to forget all the things you think you know and see what God's word says really happened that week. Now, the week begins with Jesus and his disciples entering the capital city of Jerusalem. This was not unusual. They had done this many, many times before. Only this time, unlike every other time they've been to Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't walk into the city unnoticed. He actually rides a donkey into the city and everybody notices. They, they throw this huge parade to welcome Jesus to Jerusalem. Notice from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 8. Matthew says, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's where we get the term Palm Sunday. And notice the crowds that went ahead of him, went ahead of Jesus, And those who followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, what's happening? What's different about this week? Well, two things. One, it is the Passover celebration week. This Jewish national holiday where Jews from all over the region would literally come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to remember when God rescued them through Moses from slavery in Egypt. Hundreds of years before, and they would gather and share a meal and party and celebrate what God has done. Probably the closest thing we have to this in our culture today is the city of New Orleans during the week of Mardi Gras, right? It's a big, huge party and the streets are packed and Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. Why? Because that's how kings entered a city. When kings are going off to war, they ride a horse But when they come home in victory, they enter riding a donkey. And Jesus is declaring that he is the king. And the people are receiving him as king. That's why they're throwing cloaks on the road and and putting palm branches. That's what you did when a king came to your city. Now fast forward just five short days. This same Jesus who enters Jerusalem as a king, five days later will be crucified as a criminal. Jesus who comes in on Sunday like a rock star will be dead on a trash heap by Friday. What happened? What changed? See, obviously there's more going on here than the flannel graph and the Easter pageants could ever truly Explain. And so we're going to look at some of the events and, more importantly, some of the key people in this dramatic week to not only better understand what this week was all about, but maybe more importantly, to learn some lessons from this last week of Jesus' life that we can apply to our lives. Three lessons from the last week of Jesus' life. And to help us learn these lessons, we're going to look at three key players in the Passion Week drama. And the first person we learn a lesson from is the hero of the story, Jesus. Now obviously there's a lot we can learn from Jesus during the last week of his life, but I think the one lesson, at least for me, the one lesson I see from Jesus during the last week of his life is this. Don't let circumstances define my priorities. Don't let the circumstances of my life define my priorities in life. I think most of us would admit that we often allow the urgent to overshadow the important, right? I mean, if I'm honest with you, most of my weeks, my time and my energy get used up by things that other people think are urgent. And not really used for the things that are truly important in my life. Now to say that this was a busy and chaotic week for Jesus is a huge understatement. In fact, many of the things that you know about Jesus all happened during this one week. Many of the things that Jesus did and Jesus said were compacted into this single week. This is the same week that Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers and cleared the temple. It is in this same week that Jesus was anointed with perfume by a sinful woman and the disciples got mad. This is the same week that Jesus gave us the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the week that Jesus instituted the the Lord's Supper, this symbol of the bread and the cup, the broken body and the shed blood. I mean, not to mention his arrest and his trial. All of that happened in these few short days and yet in spite of those circumstances, Jesus never lost sight of his priorities. He never lost sight of who he was and why he was was there. Let me ask you a question. If you knew you only had five days left to live, would your schedule this week look different than what you've got planned right now? I mean, if you knew today on Sunday that you would be dead on Friday, would you change some things? Sure, we all would. We go to our emergency bucket list. We try to get all the things in our life in order, all the things we knew we should have been doing All along. You know what to me is the most amazing thing about the last week of Jesus' life? How similar it is to every other week of his life. Jesus continued to do the same things he'd been doing for the last three and a half years. And as I walk through this last week of Jesus' life, there are a couple of priorities in his life that he keeps living out even in the last days. Of his life. Three of them I want to mention. One, write this down, compassion. Compassion. Compassion was obviously a priority in Jesus' life. He cared about hurting people, and that didn't change when he got down to the short rows, right? You see this throughout the week, but my favorite example actually occurs when Jesus and his disciples are on the way to the Palm Sunday Parade, They're on their way from the city of Jericho up the Jericho road to the city of Jerusalem. And while they're traveling to make it in time for the parade, two blind guys who are sitting on the side of the road somehow, I don't know how, somehow figure out that Jesus is coming by and they begin to shout out, son of David, have mercy on us. And the disciples do what I do when I'm busy and I'm heading somewhere important. They say, look, you know, normally Jesus would love to help you guys out, but this is a really busy week. We've got a schedule. We've got to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. We've got an upper room to set up. We've got a lot of work to do. Jesus is all about compassion, but he just can't get to you today. That's how I would respond. But notice Jesus' response. Matthew 20, 34. It says, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and followed him. You see that? Jesus didn't let his circumstances determine his priorities. A second priority that Jesus lives out during this last week of his life is the priority of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation was not just a priority in Jesus' life. It is the ultimate purpose of his life the whole reason he was here the bible tells us that in second corinthians that god was in jesus reconciling himself to the world the whole reason they're going to jerusalem is for jesus to die on a cross to reconcile to pay the price to allow sinful, broken people to be connected with a perfect and holy God. That's the big mission of Jesus' life. But what's cool to me is that even in the middle of fulfilling the big mission, the whole purpose of his life, he continued to focus on this little daily mission of reconciliation, of reconciling his followers to each other. Probably for me, the best example of this is in the Last Supper. This beautiful meal where Jesus redefines the meaning of the bread and the cup. And yes, Jesus clearly does that so that these followers and all followers who would come after them would remember what Jesus did on the cross. He's saying, look, don't forget what you're about to see, yes, it is about remembering, but I also believe that it is about reminding the disciples of what holds them together. You have to understand these 12 men who followed Jesus for three and a half years, they're one of the most diverse groups of people ever assembled for a common purpose. They come from different backgrounds, different political persuasions, different races different life experiences. There could not be a more different group of people. And yet Jesus says, don't forget what bonds you together is me, what I'm about to do. In fact, notice what Jesus says after he gives them the bread and the cup, John 13. Jesus says, a new, I give you a new command, love each other. You must love each other as I have loved you. All people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. You understand Jesus' point, right? That's pretty straightforward. It's about loving each other, being reconciled to people who have a different political persuasion than you, but you are united by your love for Jesus and his call on your life. Next week at all of our campuses, we are going to celebrate on Palm Sunday the Lord's Supper together. And yes, I hope that time of worship and taking the elements together will help us remember what Jesus did that first Easter weekend. But I'm also hoping and praying it will remind us of what bonds us together, that we are reconciled beyond our politics, our race, our own personal identity of who we think we are. Reconciliation is a priority of Jesus, and that didn't change when the week got crazy. And then finally, the third priority we see of Jesus in this last week of his life is connection. Connection, his connection with God. Right after they took this last supper, the Bible says that Jesus and his disciples left the city. They went outside the city walls to this area, this Olive tree garden and in that olive tree area there was a special little garden called Gethsemane and they go there and notice what happens Luke 22 it says Jesus left the city and went to the Mount of Olives as he often did hold on to that thought because we're coming back to it and then it says his followers went with him And then Jesus went about a stone's throw away from them, from his followers, and he kneeled down and prayed. Now, this is the part of the story we know. This is the opening scene of Mel Gibson's movie. Jesus in the garden pouring out his heart, begging God to take away the cup that he knows he's about to go through. So much so, under so much stress, that the capillaries in his skin burst and he literally sweats drops of blood. This is the part of the story we know and we understand it right? Because when the wheels come off in our life, when we're desperate, when it's out of control, we pray. I I know almost nobody who doesn't pray in the desperate moments of life. But understand for Jesus, this was not something new. This was a daily habit. This was a daily part of his life. No, not sweating drops of blood, but being alone and pouring out his heart to God, to his Father, connecting with him, That was a priority of Jesus' life and that didn't get bumped off the calendar just because he had a busy week ahead of him. Don't let the circumstances of your life determine the priorities of your life. This is really interesting. I wasn't planning this, but I noticed it this week. Those three priorities, those three things you just wrote down in the blanks, look at them carefully. Those Are the essentials of our faith. If you don't get anything else, if you don't do anything else, make sure you are doing those three. You may have noticed this past year when I do the midweek update on Wednesdays on social media or on the app, I have always ended, for the past year, I've ended almost every one of those videos. Telling you, reminding you to do three things. Remember what I tell you? Stay focused on Jesus. Somebody say it, right? Stay connected to each other and keep looking for ways to be the church wherever God has placed you. I keep saying that over and over every week, not because I've run out of stuff to say. I keep saying that because those are the most important things to do, especially when life gets difficult. Notice, that's exactly what Jesus did. Stay focused on Jesus. Jesus stayed connected to his Father. Stay connected to each other. Reconciliation. And keep looking for ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the church wherever you go. That's compassion. And I'm just saying, the more difficult the circumstances in your life become, the more important it is to keep these priorities and let them define who you are. Don't don't allow chaos and circumstances to cause you to lose sight of what really matters in your life. Don't let the difficult circumstances keep you from making what matters most matter more in your life. That's the first lesson. The second lesson we learned from the last week of Jesus' life comes from an unusual source. It actually comes from the bad guys in the story, the religious leaders. And here's the lesson we learned from them. Don't let my preferences define my view of God. Don't let my preferences define my view of God. Don't let what I'm comfortable with, what I like, what makes me feel good, Keep me from seeing where and how God is moving. One of the most interesting things of that week is actually pretty easy to overlook. It happens right after the Palm Sunday parade. Jesus rides that donkey right down to the temple courts. And it's there that he turns over the table of the money changers and clears the temple. But he doesn't run away and hide. When he does that, he stays in the temple area, and people, crowds flock to him, and he's healing. He's giving sight to the blind. The the lame are being healed, and they're able to walk. And the little kids are running around the temple court repeating what they had heard their parents chanting in the Palm Sunday parade. Hosanna to God in the highest. That's what's happening at the temple. But I want you to notice how the religious leaders respond. Matthew 21, 15. It says, but when the chief priest and teachers of the law said, saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were what? What's that word? And did you catch that? Blind people are getting sight." Lame people are standing up and walking. It's happening right in front of them, and they're mad about it. Why? Because their personal preferences have painted God in a box of their own comfort. They couldn't imagine that God would work this way. You know, it's easy to paint these guys, these religious leaders in the gospel, it's just a bunch of self-centered, self-righteous, power-hungry men. And maybe they are. I mean, not all of them. And I don't think they were always that way. It's easy for us to forget these religious leaders, they had devoted their entire life to God. They had given up everything in order to pursue God and prepare the nation of Israel for Messiah to come. That's why they were obsessed with other people's sin. It was not just self-righteousness. They just assumed that it was their job to eliminate sin from the nation so that Messiah could come. I mean, these guys were committed. They were all in. In following God. Do you realize they literally memorized the entire Old Testament? Think about that. You've read the Old Testament or looked through it. Not only is it long, but it's full of all kinds of complicated, you know, birth order things. They had memorized it word from word. They were committed. And what's really strange to me, the fact that they had memorized the Old Testament when so much of the Old Testament points right to Jesus. The very things they're seeing Jesus do and say are clearly spelled out in the Old Testament that they had memorized, and yet they missed it. Why? Because of their own preferences. Because of the box they had painted God in. You know, I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, I wonder if at any point when they were looking at what Jesus was doing, and listening to what Jesus was saying, and looking at all the wonderful things that were happening around Jesus, I wonder if this Old Testament promise from Isaiah ever popped into their head. God says, look, for I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? And their answer was no. Because they had dug their heels in they had decided that God would move and work in the way that they thought God ought to move and work. You know, when I look back over this past year, I can't help but wonder if maybe we've done some of the same thing. Maybe the reason we've been so obsessed with politics is because when things are going crazy, we want control. We want the world to be the way that we want it. We want things to be comfortable, to be familiar to us. Maybe the reason we are all so obsessed with getting back to normal in a world which, by the way, is never going to be normal again, it never has been. The history of the world is constant defining moments is constantly being changed and different it's never going back to normal it doesn't need to for God to work that's why it's so important when everything around us is chaotic to stay focused on the unchanging God who is always doing a new thing and maybe we're just not willing to see it can I ask you a question a personal question really Is there some place in your life right now where it might just be possible that your personal preferences are keeping you from seeing something God is doing, wonderful things God is doing right in front of you? And if the answer to that is yes, then my follow-up question is this. What are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna be like the religious leaders and allow your preferences and your desire for a world that you understand and a world that makes sense to you keep you from seeing God? Do the new thing he's doing right in front of you? Or maybe you might want to hold that a little looser. Be a little less desperate for what makes you comfortable and a little more desperate for the God who brings ultimate comfort beyond our circumstances. Finally, the third lesson we learned from the last week of Jesus' life comes from the most interesting people in the story, and that is the crowd. It's this nebulous group of people who seem to keep showing up at key moments in the drama. And the lesson they teach us is this. Don't let disappointment define my hope. Don't let the disappointments in my life define the hope Of my life. See, this is so easy to forget. This is something that the Easter pageant and the you know the flannel board lessons and even the movies don't fully share. And it is this: the same people who were lining the streets of Jerusalem screaming Hosanna on Sunday are the same people who are outside in the courts of Pilate's palace screaming crucify him just four days later. It's the same people. It's the reason Pilate had Jesus crucified. You you do understand, Pilate, the only person who didn't want Jesus killed besides Jesus' followers is Pilate. The only reason he had Jesus executed is because of the crowd. Notice Matthew 27. Pilate asked, so what should I do with Jesus, the one called the Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. And Pilate asked, why? Well, what wrong has he done? But they just shouted louder, crucify him. What happened? Why do these people who scream Hosanna on Sunday... Scream, crucify him on Friday morning. Well, you need to understand what was happening on that Palm Sunday. This was no pageantry parade. This Palm Sunday parade, this was no hippy-dippy kumbaya love fest. This was an act of rebellion. This was the people taking to the streets desperate for change. Look, the Palm Sunday parade was probably more like what we saw on the streets of our city this summer and the steps of our capital at the beginning of the year than any Easter pageant has ever shown. Here's why I say that. Because for them, to declare Jesus as king is an act of treason. Under the Roman rules, the Roman Empire declared anyone but Caesar king is treason punishable by death. But they don't care, they've had enough. They're sick and tired of the oppression and they are convinced Jesus can fix it for them. That's what Hosanna means. The reason they shout Hosanna, Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It's actually two Hebrew words put together. Yasha, which means rescue and na now. Rescue us now. Save us now. Free us now. They put their lives on the line that Sunday. And what happens? Monday comes, nothing changes. Tuesday comes and they're still in the same old circumstances. They're still being oppressed. Wednesday comes and Jesus has done nothing And then sometime late Thursday night, they hear a rumor that Jesus has been arrested and he's gonna be tried before Pilate on the steps of Pilate's palace first thing Friday morning, right? You ever wonder why these people show up at the crack of dawn on Friday morning? Remember, they've been up all night partying and drinking multiple cups of wine as a part of the Passover, and yet they show up crack of dawn. There's no... Instagram. There's no Facebook to call them to rebellion to be there. So why are they there? Maybe, just maybe, at some point, They remembered the stories their grandparents and great-grandparents had told them about God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and how Moses took on Pharaoh right on the steps of Pharaoh's palace. And they thought, oh, today's the day. Jesus is gonna rest. He's gonna smack Pilate down and we're gonna be free at last. It's gonna happen. And they're there on Friday morning anticipating freedom and rescue. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't defend them. He doesn't even defend themselves. And their disappointment is more than they can take. And they decide if he can't rescue us now, he might as well be dead. Their disappointment defined their hope. See, what they didn't realize? That Jesus was redefining what a rescue meant. That he was going to rescue them from something they didn't even know they needed to be rescued from. That he was doing something that was going to free them for all eternity. But they couldn't see it because of their disappointment. Listen, I don't know the disappointment with God that you're wrestling with right now. But I know all of us have that. We all have those moments in life when God doesn't do what we think he ought to do or God is not doing the things we believe he ought to do. And believe me, I get that. But I want you to understand in your disappointment with God, in those times when you feel left out and God has not done what you think he ought to do, I want you to listen to this because this isn't a lesson that comes from some ivory tower theology class in seminary. This is a lesson that comes from the deep within the broken heart of a father who lost a beautiful son way too soon and it shouldn't have happened and yet in that disappointment with God, here's what I know that I know that I know. That whatever God has done, is doing, has not done, has not done, whatever it is, it has always been somehow an act of love. That God is always acting towards you in love. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I just know that it's true because my God is faithful and he's not a God who loves. He is a God who is love. And it's not in the way I want it and in the time I want it, but it doesn't change the fact that God loves you. And he's doing stuff that you may not can understand now, but he's acting in love towards you. So I want to give you this last promise on your outline, because I believe for some of you today, you desperately need to grab hold of this truth. Notice Deuteronomy 7, 9. It says, so no." No, you don't have to guess, you don't have to wonder, you don't even have to hope. You can know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, and he will keep his agreement of love for a thousand lifetimes for people who love him and obey his commands. When you're feeling disappointed with God, look at the cross. When you don't understand what God is doing or not doing, Look at the cross. When you feel like God has abandoned you and forgotten you and doesn't care, look at the cross, why? Because the cross redefines what our hope is truly built on. So I wanna ask you, have you experienced that hope in your life? Is what happened on that cross outside of Jerusalem on a trash heap? Has that become personal to you? Have you allowed it to free you up from the bondage of sin and allow you to walk daily in a stumbling relationship with a perfect and holy God? Or is this just gonna be another Easter where you think about the story, you sing the songs, you eat the candy, you show off your new clothes, and you go back to the same old, empty same hole? No better way to celebrate Easter than to allow that defining moment to redefine your hope and your life. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you that our hopes are not pinned to some pageant. Our hopes are not built on some magic genie in the bottle God who gives us whatever we think we need. I thank you that our hope is in a faithful God who always acts in love towards us and is always calling us to truly be rescued. Not temporary rescue from tough circumstances, but an eternal rescue that allows us to find purpose and meaning and hope in even the darkest days of our lives. So Father, would you help this Easter be different for us, that we would allow this defining moment of our faith to truly define our lives and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.